Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. Hello, welcome to Granary VIP's podcast. You're listening to Conversations with Pastor Sam Paul Pili. And today we have a special guest, Sarah Bruch from Newcastle University. Sarah, can you please introduce yourself, please? Sure. Thanks for having me here today, Sam, and to all the VIPs who will be listening to this. So my name is Sarah Bruch. I'm a solicitor at the University of Newcastle Legal Centre. For those of you who aren't familiar with the way the University of Newcastle Legal Centre works, we provide practical legal training for students during the final two years of their law degree, which enables them to then go out in and start practising as soon as they finish their degree. But the great thing is that in order to provide them with that practical legal training, the uni effectively funds a community legal centre, which provides free legal advice. And we particularly target people from backgrounds where they otherwise wouldn't have access to pay for legal advice. That's great. That's awesome. Thank you for doing that. So uh, why, do you, why do you like working in this area? Uh, so uh, there are six solicitors in the legal centre. I am one of them and I really like working with the students, but I also really like having the client interaction and the particular area that I work in mostly is what we generally call elder law or the sort of wills and estates and planning ahead type area. Which is perfect for our listeners. That's right. That's right. Sounds like you're the target audience. Um, And I like this area because the fact that we're all going to die is just a fact of life. It's one of the absolute certainties. But I think you can try and manage this stage of your life and look after the people you love and the people you leave behind really well by sort of thinking this stuff through and being organised, I suppose. So I quite enjoy helping people to think about those issues. Thank you for your work, Sarah. So what are the documents that people should know about when they think about this area of law? Yeah, so the, the we sort of think about three main documents and the critical timing here is that two of them are particularly relevant up until you pass away and then after you pass away there's a there's a different one that's relevant so while you're alive and I'll go through these in a bit more detail but there's a power of attorney document the enduring guardian document and then once you pass away that's the point at which your will comes into effect and so that's the other document that we think of that it's important to think about so They're kind of separate documents, but there is some overlap in some regards between them. So do you want me to go through and talk about each of those, Sam? Yes, please. That'll be great. So the first one we think about is the power of attorney document. So this is a document that allows you to appoint someone else who can make legal and financial decisions on your behalf. And for most people, they're really thinking about someone to do this at a point when they can't make these decisions. Or perhaps when it's, they might still be able to make the decisions, but it's difficult. It's physically difficult to be sort of taking care of these things. So, for example, you might want someone else who can talk to Centrelink on your behalf or can go and get money out of the bank for you or pay your bills or something like that. So that's the first one of these documents we think about. So when you give someone a power of attorney power, they have to act in your best interests. That's sort of one of the fundamental rules. They can't be gaining a personal benefit from it. But it is important, therefore, for you to think about appointing someone who you really trust to this role. Um, The sorts of 
So I guess the major decision for people is who do I want to appoint? Sometimes people will appoint um, one person at first instance and then some other people as alternatives. So, for example, if you have a partner, a husband or a wife, you oftentimes someone will appoint them and then if in the event that that partner can't act, they might appoint adult children or some other relative or friend in the alternative. That's a good idea to do because let's just say I'd appointed my husband to that role and then by the time I perhaps get dementia and I can no longer do this stuff, my husband may no longer be alive, but by this point it's too late for me to do a new document because I've already lost mental capacity. So that's where having the substitute people as well is a really good thing to think about. Um, other things that people should think about is when do they want it to start? So you get to choose when the document takes effect. Some people say, I only want it to start when I really can't do it myself. So that might be that we write in the document because it is a document that has to be drawn up by a lawyer or at least witnessed by a lawyer. Um, it might be that you say, I want this to start when my treating doctor says I now need assistance. Alternatively, especially when people are appointing a partner or someone who they're sort of is already doing a lot of stuff for them, they might say, oh, look, just have it start straight away. Effectively, you know, they're doing all this stuff now. So that's a personal decision for the person making the appointment, sort of how when they want that to start. Um, I'm just thinking about other things, other sort of decisions to be made around this document. So another one is because the starting position is the attorney, the person you're appointing, can only um, act in your best interests. If, however, you have someone or some people who are financially dependent upon you, you can put in a special power in the, in, within the power of attorney that allows the attorney to spend the money also for the benefit or reasonable living costs of someone else who's dependent on you. So let's say I always find it easiest to talk about myself in this context because it makes it more sort of workable. But let's say I have my husband as my attorney and um, I also would have a power allowing him to spend my money for his own reasonable living and medical expenses, but also for the reasonable living and medical expenses of any dependent children I have because I or anyone else who I'm financially responsible for. So I can kind of include that in there. Now, in terms of what else we sort of think about with this, so we know it needs to be witnessed by a solicitor. That's really because you are giving someone a huge amount of power and so it's important for the solicitor to be able to assess, number one, that you know what you're doing and know what you're signing, but also that you're signing it of your own free will and you're not being talked into signing this by someone who might not have good purposes for it. Um, this particularly is relevant in the context of um, elder abuse. So when we think about elder abuse now, we think about this physical elder abuse, but a very common sort is financial elder abuse. So if, for example, someone has a child, an adult child who's pressuring them to sign this power over and then the child starts using the money inappropriately or something, then that's elder abuse. So the solicitor who's witnessing it really wants to check that you trust the person you're appointing. So that's kind of a really important aspect of it. Uh, the other thing that it's good to, uh, in terms of the who to appoint issue, just this is something that often comes up. People often say, I don't want to pick favourites between my children. 
I want to be really fair, but let's just say you have five children. Appointing them all could be just really practically difficult. <laughs> so what I mean by this is let's say um, you need to talk, they need to speak to, say, your electricity provider at your house or something, talk to Energy Australia. The idea that all five of them have to get on the phone with Energy Australia at the same time will just create an absolute headache for them and they won't be grateful for that. So the document can be structured, for example, to allow that it's okay for one of them to do that or it might be you think through and you go, you know what, two of them live in Newcastle but one's in Queensland, one's in Victoria and one's in Sydney. Really probably the appointing, appointing the two here is more sensible. So we sort of like to try and also think about aspects of it like that. The other major thing we say there here and in relation to lots of issues where you're appointing someone to a role, don't appoint people together who don't get along because that's just like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> you do not want attorneys at war with each other um, because sort of having a dispute because ultimately it's not going to end up going in your best interests if your attorneys don't get along. Uh, I think in, in that case, my parents shouldn't put my, me and my elder sister together. I, I do have people say that a bit. They go, oh, no, let's not do that combination. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's good. Thank you. Thank you for this practical advice too and in in, in personalising with some great examples. So what sort of problems can be avoided by having these documents in place? Probably the best way to think of it is what happens if you don't have it in place? So if someone doesn't have it in place at all, and this does sometimes happen where, um, say, as a result of some sudden medical episode, someone has lost the mental capacity, but decisions need to be made. So let's say they can no longer manage living at home on their own, but they're not even able to make these decisions themselves about perhaps moving into an aged care facility or something. Sort of the way the law deals with this is that if there is no attorney who can, for example, sign a contract to enter an aged care facility on someone's behalf and take those necessary steps, it is possible to apply to the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, which is, tribunals are sort of like informal courts. And the guardianship division of NCAT, as we call it, has the capacity to appoint someone as a financial manager, which is like being an attorney, it's just you were appointed by the tribunal. That's the only reason for the different name. Most of the time, though, what will happen, and, and there are, it's great that there is that ability to do that, but the tribunal always take the view, oh, all right, when an application's made by someone saying, I need to be appointed as the financial manager of my mum's, um, of my mum's sort of estate of what she owns because mum's no longer got capacity. The starting position will be that the tribunal will say, okay, so what problem have you hit that means we need to appoint someone? And what this really is saying is if things can be managed informally, then just go with it. As long as people are not ripping mum off or doing anything illegal or in some way not acting in mum's best interest, then if it's being managed informally, that's okay. Just let it let it go and that'll be all right. But where uh, there really is a problem, then it is possible for the tribunal to appoint someone, as I say, as a financial manager who can make these decisions. So that's kind of the what if no one's been appointed and the person's already lost mental capacity. The other type of problem is what I talked about with the elder abuse, and that is where someone has appointed someone who 
I, I sort of regard as they go rogue. You know, they're not acting in the best interests of the person for whom they're being the attorney. And in that case, let, so let's just say, so let, let's go with Sam. Let's say Sam's parents um, appointed him as the attorney and then his sister thinks that Sam is really not doing the right thing. We're really hoping this doesn't happen and we're not accusing Sam of him doing anything terrible. But let's say then his sister goes, oh, Sam's crazy, you know, what's he doing? So it's open to her to apply to the tribunal and say, look, my brother is my parents' attorney. I don't think he's doing the right thing. I think you should take him out and replace him with me. The attorney, uh, sorry, the tribunal will want to see real evidence of that, but it's good they've got that power because if you have someone abusing those powers, you want the capacity to have them removed. So usually money can change mindsets, you know, so it really can turn good people into bad people too sometimes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And sometimes people, you know, may be going through stuff in their own life that means they lose sight of what they're meant to be doing and how they should be behaving. But there needs to be a sort of a solution to that. And so the, an application to the tribunal is the solution. So I think that, sorry, have you got any other thoughts, Sam, on the power of attorney one, which is all about the money? No, that, that's good. I mean, it's good. It's good to know. I'm, I'm learning a lot of new things. That's fine. So the other document we talk about in this space, if we think about your life, your financial and legal affairs being in this part of your life, and then there's the rest of your life. So we think of that as your lifestyle decisions. And this brings in the other document, which is called the appointment of an enduring guardian. So appointing an enduring guardian is appointing someone who can make lifestyle decisions on your behalf when you can't make them yourself. With this one, you don't even choose when it starts. As long as you can still make these decisions yourself, you will always be able to. So let's say I even, um, so I've had a stroke and I can no longer speak, but I'm still, you know, mentally I'm still okay. As long as I can in some way convey to doctors, nurses, people around me, I still don't need a guardian. I can make those decisions myself. But if, for example, I'm unconscious, then I'm at that point I'm someone in need of a guardian. So appointing someone as your enduring guardian, it gives them standard powers, and that is they can decide where you live, they can decide what health care you receive, they can consent to particular health or dental treatment on your behalf, and they can consent to other services. So by that we tend to think they can arrange a haircut, that sort of thing. The other thing that can be given to a guardian is the broadly speaking do not resuscitate type power. So this is where the document can say if I'm in sort of uh, the end stage of life, I have an irreversible illness, I'm permanently unconscious and doctors say there's no prospect of recovery, effectively you can give the guardian the decision to say I don't want to you to actively keep them alive anymore. And I'm, I'm interested by the fact that honestly now about 98% of people would choose to have that power, to give that power to their guardian. So we're really sort of here thinking about it's not about voluntary assisted dying. This is about more letting nature take its course. That is, we know there's no other way this ends other than that I'm going to pass away at this point, but I'd rather not have it prolonged. So that's, that's the other power you can give a guardian. So, again, this one has to be witnessed by a solicitor because it's a pretty serious appointment. Uh, as I said, we don't need to choose when it starts. You can appoint people jointly or you can have one person and then have alternatives, so the same sort of options regarding who you appoint. 
People often ask, is it okay to have the same person as your attorney, so managing your money, and as your guardian? And there's no problem with that at all. It always just comes down to do you trust the person? If you've got different people appointed for each, good idea if they get on. So I've only seen this once, but I have once known of a case where someone appointed their son as their attorney because they said he was good with money and their daughter as their guardian because they said she was compassionate. As it was unfortunate to have to quite label them quite so clearly, but leave that aside. And it reached a point where this person had lost capacity and needed to move into an aged care facility. So the son as the attorney needed to arrange the sale of the house in order to fund the way into the aged care facility, but the daughter was the one who had to make the decision to go into the aged care facility because that's where you live. And in this situation, the daughter knew the parent needed to be in the facility, um, but the son wouldn't agree to sell the house because he thought it was too valuable an asset. And so that creates a problem you then need to go to the tribunal for. But honestly, I've only heard of that once. So you can have different people, but really no problem to have one and the same person at all. Uh, the problems that arise in this area, in much the same way as with the appointment of an attorney, let's say in the guardian context, say that I've been taken to hospital in an emergency context, I'm unconscious and someone needs to consent to medical treatment on my behalf. Say doctors are saying, look, you know, we think we should do this surgery. If I don't have a guardian appointed, if I have a guardian appointed, they will ask that guardian, what, you know, what do you want us to do? You need to make the call. If you don't have a guardian appointed, then the medical system kind of recognises who is the personal person responsible. Now, most of the time that won't become a problem. So if you've got a partner, they're likely to be recognised as the person responsible. If you don't and you've got, you know, an involved child, other relative, friend, they will be regarded as the person responsible. This only, and that person can make decisions, this only becomes a problem where you have a disagreement between people who could both be regarded as the person responsible, which we often think of as that next, next of kin term. So to give you an example of when this might go wrong, let's say, um, let's say I, have a, I have a husband, he's not the father of my children, and let's say he doesn't get along with my children, my adult children, very well, and I'm taken to hospital, I'm unconscious, and they're saying we need to do an operation on Sarah. If my husband's saying, go ahead, operate, yes, you should, but my children are saying, no, mum's at the end of her life, she wouldn't have wanted this, that's a problem where they've got disagreement between these two different people, um, and ultimately I mean, if it's an emergency context, they can't apply to the guardianship tribunal. They're just going to have to make a call. But that's the situation in which to ensure your wishes are carried out, it's a really good idea to have a guardian appointed so they know what you want. So what happens if the, in this situation, though, the example that you said, so who would the doctors listen to in this situation? They're more likely to listen to, so let's say my partner is... Um, you know, I've been with him a number of years and I'm married to him, a spouse will generally re be regarded as being sort of the, if you like, the superior vote. But if, I mean, let's just, let's just say it seems like I've been only with him for about two weeks and the hospital can kind of read the room and figure out that vibe, then they're more likely to defer to my children. But you can see it's a really 
difficult situation for doctors to be in to try and work that out. So they'll sort of do the best with what's available to them at the time. It's important that your family know of what your thoughts are about, well, particularly, say, if you know you have a terminal illness, it's important your family have an idea of what your attitude is to how this should go. But the other thing I've actually seen that having this guardianship appointment does is it helps your family to make what might be really heart-wrenching difficult decisions at a difficult time. It actually helps them to know that's what you wanted. So I had a bit of this from personal experience last year. My uh, my father-in-law and then my mother-in-law both died eight weeks apart last year. And my husband was, uh, my father-in-law and mother-in-law each had each other appointed and then my husband as their sort of next in line, the alternative. So when my father-in-law died, he had he had a heart attack at home, an ambulance was called, the carer was there. My mother-in-law was also there, but she was quite sort of old herself. And the ambulance arrived and they said, should we resuscitate him? And he was an he was 88 years old and was on 24-hour-a-day oxygen and was very unwell. And my mother-in-law said, no, don't resuscitate him. He just wants to go. It's his time. And then they said to her, who's his guardian? And she was obviously confused completely, understandably, and upset. So she said, oh, it's our son. So they say, okay, we'll ring him. So they rang my husband and said, your father's had a heart attack. Do you want him to be revived? Your mum says he shouldn't be. And he said, no. We don't want him revived. He didn't want to be revived. And so that was fine. But I genuinely saw that it's actually really, I mean, in a sense, there wasn't much of a decision to be made there because I think he was already gone. But the fact that he'd put in writing that he wanted that made it that much easier for them to just be absolutely certain what he wanted. And then, in fact, eight weeks later, this was a more difficult one, when my mother-in-law had gone to hospital with something and then um, it was becoming worse and they said she had a bowel obstruction. They could operate, but it was very unlikely she'd survive the operation. And they said to her, what do you want to do? And she said, I don't know, which was really very, very difficult. So they turned to my husband as her guardian and said, what do you want to do? We don't think she'll survive the operation. And so it was it was very hard for him, but he said, no, I don't think she would want this. I don't think she'd want to put herself through this. But it was still a difficult decision for him. There's no no denying that at all. But the fact that he had the document there saying, in the event that doctors say there's no chance I'll recover, I don't want to continue, I saw that that still provided him with significant comfort in actually having to make that difficult decision. So I really would say to people it it acts as this kind of... um, it actually acts as a comfort to your family members if they need to make those decisions for you. So I do think that's um, really kind of good to bear in mind. Yeah, Thank you so much for sharing that personal uh, experience. It's such a hard thing for your husband and you as a family to go through that and to share that with us. Thank you so much. No, that's fine. I've sent an email earlier this week uh, asking some of our listeners they have sent me some questions, but before I jump into those questions, do you have anything else that you want to share before? I should just quickly mention the Advanced Care Directive, which is um, an adva- sometimes called an Advanced Healthcare Directive. So sometimes people, when they're confronting a particular illness, um, a doctor may suggest they do one of these, which 
looks forward at the healthcare needs they might have and then considers, is this going to be, you know, when do I or don't I want active treatment in relation to that illness? All I was going to say is if you, they, they can be good documents where people have really firm ideas about what they do or don't want. And the document, though, needs to be consistent with who they've got appointed as their guardian so that the people still um, respect those decisions that are made in that advanced care directive. And that is a, it's a legally binding document, but it doesn't have, it's usually done by doctors or medical people rather than solicitors. No, happy to go to your questions now, Sam Paul. Thanks. So one of the questions were, is there a Bill of Rights for ageing people? Yeah, so the answer to this is no, there's not. There's no Bill of Rights for any Australians. We are unusual in being a um, constitutional democracy and that we don't have a Bill of Rights, and so we don't have one for anyone. There are some uh, sort of if you like, a strange scattergun assortment of rights that are protected under the Constitution, but they're things like um, the right to vote, the right that the government can't acquire your property without uh, on unjust terms, so that's the one from The Castle, if anyone can think of the movie, uh, the right to a trial by jury, the right to freedom of religion and the right to not be discriminated against on the basis of which state or territory you live in. But no, we don't actually have a Bill of Rights for anyone. How can we legally measure and implement our rights as we age? So in terms of measuring your rights, your rights remain as they sort of have been through your life. But I think as you age, the important sort of rights to think about are you still have a right to autonomy. You still have a right to make decisions for yourself unless you're regarded as not having mental capacity. But so the kind of rights where this might really assert themselves are, let's say that I live in my own home and I'm quite frail and my kids might come to me and say, no way, mum, you can't stay there. You know, you're just, it's not safe. If I've still got my mental faculties about me and I can honestly say, yeah, look, I know I might take a fall and then as a result of that I die, but I'd rather stay here. I've actually got that right. So that you don't have the fact that you're an older person, you don't give up that right to make decisions for yourself unless it's assessed that you really have lost the mental capacity to do so. So don't let anyone tell you that you are not, you know, that now that you're old, other people have to make decisions on your behalf. You know, I think that's kind of the best way to think of that. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, the other question is, is there a legal cornerstone for respect as we age? So there is no legal cornerstone, but I guess what this really raises to me, this question, is the idea of elder abuse. And elder abuse is really a term that's only come out in the last couple of years, and it's a recognition that sometimes older people are not treated with the respect that they deserve, but that everyone deserves really, and that People are being taken advantage of just because they're older. That's completely unacceptable. It's also important to recognise that when we talk about elder abuse, in much the same way as we talk about with domestic violence, we're not just talking about physical abuse. We're talking about financial abuse and even psychological abuse. So if I have, um, if I have a child who says to me, Mum, unless you pay me $300 a week, I'm not bringing the grandkids over to see you, you know, that's psychological abuse. So as well as financial abuse. So there is no legal cornerstone for it, but I must say there's now an elder abuse hotline. There's a lot more awareness amongst 
health and legal specialists of elder abuse. So hopefully, as a society, we're getting much better at recognising it and um, avoiding it, hopefully. Uh, the other question would be, how early do you advise over 50s to plan for approaching changes in independence and life? This, this comes back to this idea, actually. Often I have people say in their 20s and 30s to me, oh, I don't need a will. Why do I need a will? I don't own anything. But the big thing with all of these planning ahead documents is none of us have a crystal ball to know exactly what is going to happen in our lives. So it's not really about, well, it sort of is about preparing for the worst, but also preparing for the inevitable. So I think it's good to think about this stuff now, whatever age people are really. People often, particularly doing a will, some people seem to put off doing a will because they think somehow it'll bring on death sooner. I've seen absolutely no proof that that's the case. So I suggest sort of thinking about it now and thinking about who you do trust to take on those roles of, say, the attorney or the guardian. And with your will, we encourage people to, well, have a valid will, number one. I think only 60% of adult Australians do, which means there's 40% who don't. If you don't have a will, then the law of intestacy determines who inherits what. Intestacy is just a sort of legislative regime that has very little flexibility, really no flexibility within it, and it says who gets what, and often it will not do what you might have wanted. So we really, really encourage you to get a will. So I would suggest you think about all those things, um, you know, anywhere over 50. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of them asked, how, like, what would be the cost factor in preparing these documents? Yeah, so say you went, went to a solicitor to get a will, power of attorney and enduring guardian forms. So private solicitors might charge around $600, $700. As a couple, a number of places will do both members of the couple for $1,000 or something. You can get them done more cheaply at the New South Wales Trustee and Guardian. You can get a will done. What I tend to say to people is sometimes people balk a bit at the cost it is really important to have a solicitor really help you think about what you're trying to achieve with your will. And sometimes people go, oh, that's a bit much money. But let's just say you own a house somewhere in Newcastle. Chances are that house is worth more than $400,000. So if we re think about the cost of getting a, those documents in terms of the total pool of the assets you're leaving, it's really a very small amount, but it's a huge amount of peace of mind and hopefully lack of dispute between your relatives after you're gone. And how watertight is this will? So we, I, I have a lot of people come to me and say, <laughs> I either, um, what's the point in getting a will if, you know, it can just be overridden by the court or, you know, why is a will even worth the paper it's written on? So we can't ignore that some wills get challenged. The vast majority of wills do not get challenged. So I guess that's number one. A will is a statement of your testamentary intentions. It's your intentions as to who will inherit what after you're no longer here. When we think about people challenging wills, we talk about what the courts would say. Now, ultimately only, oh, I think it's less than 5% of these matters actually end up in court. The vast majority of them settle before they get to court. But nonetheless, we look at court decisions to determine what approach to take to will challenges. For someone to successfully challenge a will, they need to show need, but they also need to be able to, but then the court also looks at the whole context of the relationship between the parties, who the 
named beneficiaries were, what the deceased was doing and why they were doing it. So, for example, if someone leaves out a child because they've had no contact from them for 20 years and they write down in a statutory declaration, this is why I haven't left anything to my son Fred, then the court will take that into account. So I cannot guarantee you'll have a 100% watertight will, but it's miles better than just leaving it to intestacy, which says this is who gets what, and that may not be what you intended at all. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for um, all these questions. Sarah, I know um, even though, you know, um, people have a lot of questions, they might have not had a chance to send me an email. But if we, if one of our listeners would like to reach out to you, how can they contact you? So um, the University of Newcastle Legal Centre offers, we offer telephone advice, but we also have a specific older person's legal service who do telephone appointments. Um, the other telephone advice is sort of normally it's a drop-in clinic when COVID's not on. So um, you can come and actually see a solicitor. But regardless of which service you'd like to access, the best thing is to either Google University of Newcastle Legal Centre and that'll bring up details about the number to ring. But if you are interested in accessing legal advice, the number to ring is 49218666 and then the reception staff can talk to you about which service most suits, you know, what sort of information you're wanting or what sort of advice. So, Yes, and then and that we cover not just this sort of area of law, we cover all sorts of um, areas of law and so we can give advice on lots of different things. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. Um, and we look forward to see you in person probably next year and uh, speak to us even COVID kind of slows down. That's right. No, that's fine. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Sam Paul. Thank you. Have a great time, guys. Hope you like this uh, podcast. Stay tuned to watch more that are coming up in the next season.